Good afternoon. Um, I'm Hussain Haqqani with the Hudson Institute. Uh, welcome uh, to uh, this uh, uh, to today's event. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to introduce uh, our speaker today, Dr. Aisha Jalal, who is the director of the Center for South Asian and, in and Indian Ocean Studies and the Mary Richardson Professor of History at Tufts University. Uh, Dr. Jalal has written several books, uh, uh, the most significant of which, uh, at least in my humble opinion, uh, are The State of Martial Rule, The Origins of Pakistan's Political Economy of Defense, and The Sole Spokesman, Jinnah, The Muslim League and the Demand for Pakistan, uh, as well as the more recent Partisans of Allah, a Jihad in South Asia. Uh, her latest book, which we are trying to uh, get her to discuss and have been trying for a while, is The Struggle for Pakistan, A Muslim Homeland and Global Politics. Uh, it's a very recent book, and I thought that it would be really uh, great to have Dr. Jalal, one of the best-known historians, uh, contemporary <coughs> historians, to emerge out of my own uh, country of birth, Pakistan. Uh, so... Um, Pakistan, of course, has been a topic of discussion. We had an event last week discussing the Pakistani military, um, and uh, we continue to have these discussions. Several of you are probably watching this, and hopefully the sound today uh, is better uh, for those watching uh, on the Internet. Uh, in uh, The Struggle for Pakistan, Muslim Homeland, and Global Politics, uh, Dr. Jalal traces the contemporary uh, politics of Pakistan uh, since its, uh, its inception in 1947. Uh, she writes, and I quote, Pakistan is a visibly, visibly disturbed and divided nation. Its people are struggling to find an answer to the mother of all questions. What sort of a Pakistan do they want along a spectrum of choices ranging from an orthodox religious state to a modern enlightened one? The public debate on this all-important issue has been vitiated by the long shadow of military authoritarianism. Um, so basically, this book, which I commend to everyone, um, is uh, sort of discusses the issue of Pakistan's attempts to try and reconcile its self-proclaimed Islamic identity with the imperatives of a modern nation-state. Um, I enjoyed reading the book and have lots of quotes from it, but if I start reading all those quotes out to you, then I might actually take away from Dr. Jalal's own presentation. So I will, without further ado, ask her uh, to speak to all of you. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation here, and uh, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador Hakani. <clears throat> and thanks to the Hudson Institute for uh, bringing me here, and to all of you for uh, coming to listen to me. Um, I'd is, there is a slideshow. Why did I write the book? Um, uh, I think one of the reasons uh, for writing uh, this particular book, which is a work of, uh, I mean, synthesis and some uh, new materials, uh, was to really counter the presentist turn that has crept into scholarship on Pakistan. Um, and I think it needed, what was needed was a work of historical interpretation um, that was attentive to key shifts um, at the domestic, regional, and international levels. There's a is that there's been a tendency in narratives on Pakistan to flatten out the history and argue uh, that really a country that was created ostensibly in the name of religion, I say, but people think it was created solely for the name of religion, um, could not but end up imploding the way that it has. Uh, and I think it's really important to correct that. And I, I'm sitting here with a man 
uh, who wrote a very, very good book <coughs> prior to his Magnificent Delusions, uh, his earlier book, uh, in which he also talked about the role of religion. Uh, and I think one of, in one of my footnotes I point out that while uh, uh, Hussein's uh, uh, narrative is a lot more nuanced, people who read the book assumed that the, the religion was always prominent in Pakistan's history. And in other words, that from the moment of its creation, the pandering to religion or religious elements meant that Pakistan could not but end up where it is today, where Muslim is fighting Muslim. Uh, so I think that that's the flattening out of history I'm referring to. Um, you need to have a long view in order to understand key shifts that took place, uh, the fact that there was nothing preordained about Pakistan ending up in this scenario just because it was created as a homeland for Muslims of India. Uh, I think these were the reasons that led me uh, to consider writing the book. It's true uh, that in a sense, ever since my first book, um, uh, The Sole Spokesman, I had intended to write a narrative history uh, up for the, for the, for the decades, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, subsequent decades of Pakistan. But my next book after The Sole Spokesman was The State of Martial Rule. Way, which I restricted to uh, the first decade in the main and had a uh, concluding uh, kind of section of chapter where I brought it up as much was, as I think up to the, eight, it was 80, 88 maybe. Um, but I felt the need to bring it up to the present. Uh, but why did I choose, uh, but I instead chose to write more scholarly works um, uh, before turning to a more general uh, narrative, a political narrative. But I've met lots of people over these years in my life who asked me to write a book of this sort. So I, if I can say so without trying to sound too um, arrogant, I mean, this was one book that I was asked to write. Most books I choose to write. Uh, so this was in some ways the most difficult book for me, and I delayed it. Uh, the first time I um, was asked to write, I, I formally uh, uh, agreed to write, was in 1993 with Cambridge University Press. And I simply didn't write it. Uh, and so I wrote several other books, and then finally Harvard University Press asked what I was working next on, and I said, now I really have to turn to this history of Pakistan. I've got to clear my desk to be released. Uh, so she, my, my editor said, no, we'd really like to do it. I said, well, I'm in, in contract with Cambridge. She said, get out of it. So I did. It took a year, and then I signed up with uh, Harvard. But even so, I disappointed my Harvard editor by writing The Pity of Partition before uh, this one. Uh, but now I think after the pity of partition on Manto's life and times, the time had come. But it was not just uh, um, the need to, um, uh, you know, fulfill my obligations. I also felt that certain developments in Pakistan made this a good moment to write and to highlight uh, the opportunities that were escaping people because Pakistan has been uh, placed in one narrative. It's a failed, failing state. Um, uh, there's nothing much... Uh, uh, really possible. Uh, there is this inexorable lunge towards Talibanization. Uh, and yet I think this was missing out some really crucial new developments that offer, however limited, some hope for Pakistan uh, to really uh, uh, turn its back on what I have called the state of martial rule. So I think these were my, the reasons. I, of course, hope that over uh, the next uh, few years, decades, Younger historians, historians that will follow, will embellish this work and really bring it more up to date. I've done what I could. The idea was to write a political narrative. That seemed to be what was required. Uh, so let me sort of give you, I mean, I'm not going to summarize this very longish book. I'm going to try and simply, uh, uh, you know, uh, raise a few uh, 
points, key turning points in Pakistan's history, uh, especially the post-1958 history. Um, so I'd like to begin with uh, my interpretation of the 1971 tragedy. I do apologize for the absence of the, I just don't know how this works. But nothing's coming on for some odd reason. It's very odd. Uh, is, that, is that because you have a Windows system? Anyway, it doesn't matter, so we can just pretend it doesn't matter. Um, so I, using hitherto um, uh, unused documents, uh, about which I'm happy to talk more uh, in question and answer, um, I was able to bring in some new dimensions into our discussions of the 71 crisis. Um, and here I wanted to just basically point out that during a visit to Dhaka uh, in 1968, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto um, declared uh, Bengali demands for provincial autonomy to be entirely um, uh, in the best interests of the country. Uh, and yet, remarkably, Bhutto, um, uh, I mean, he also referred to the fact that um, uh, the, the, he, he blamed the Pakistani bureaucracy, what's known as the establishment, for treating Bengalis as Kala Admis. Um, and this derogatory attitude had misled the government into um, uh, uh, charging Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, the Awami League leader, um, for in the Agartala conspiracy case when they might have tried negotiating with him. And Bhutto, of course, regretted that Sheikh, the Sheikh, instead of coming out and talking to him about the six points, uh, chose not to do so. Uh, he himself claimed that he was only against two of the six points, uh, and these were totally unacceptable uh, to the PPP leader, uh, who thought that uh, the government really needed to find some political solution. And so there was this scope and desire for negotiation. Um, now, and yet, just three years later, uh, Bhutto was deeply implicated in the military action uh, against Bengalis. Um, uh, and, and, and so the question that really comes is, I mean, there, there, there is a lobby uh, and, and, and a group of people that have always found it easier to blame Mr. Bhutto uh, for the 1971 debacle. Uh, in my own narrative analysis of this, based on documentation, a very close study of the 71 crisis, I make two points. One that in some ways the 71 tragedy was foretold in the nature of the relations that were forged between the center and the, Fed, and, and the constituent units of Pakistan, both east and west. The attitude of the uh, establishment consisting of the civil bureaucracy, senior civil bureaucracy, and the military, uh, that anyone uh, demanding autonomy, any, any regional um, party demanding rights was somehow secessionist. Uh, this inability to understand that, that, that demands were, could be legitimized, but they were seen through this prism of suspicion. And, and really, after 1958, after the first coup, uh, center-state relations do go for a spin. There are real problems, uh, economic, uh, political, administrative, uh, in handling this. Um, and when it comes to really understanding what unfolded in 71, one amongst the things I show is that negotiations never broke down. Uh, they were forestalled by the military action um, of 1971. In other words, uh, I, I, I point out that just as in 47, that's been an argument that some of you may be familiar with, that partition of India was avoidable if, if, if power-sharing uh, power arrangements had been made. Similarly, you find in 1971 that the creation of a separate state of Bangladesh was not necessarily the only option. Um, it's true that the delays led to it eventually, uh, but in, in many ways, uh, the, the need was to negotiate a federal framework in which Bengali demands could be accommodated. In that context, Mr. Bhutto did end up, I admit, uh, becoming um, a pawn of sorts 
uh, in the military's hands. But he w didn't really, he wasn't in power at this stage to really determine um, the decisions that were taken. Uh, in, in a sense, the military preempted um, uh, any form of negotiation that might have led to a, an accommodation of Bengali demands. So that too was forestalled by the military for reasons that I'm happy to elaborate. Um, and really, I think that in the post-71 scenario, um, uh, it really has been a trial by fire for the constituent units of Pakistan. Instead of understanding why um, uh, uh, Bangladesh was created, the usual narrative in Pakistan was that this was India's doing, proving a long-standing suspicion, this obsession, that India is out there to break up Pakistan. Um, I think a close analysis of history will suggest that in 1947, uh, the Indian or National Congress was rather glad to be rid of the Muslim problem, at least in the Muslim majority provinces, and far from wanting this to be dismantled or collapse. They might want Pakistan to be weak, but certainly don't want it to come back into the Indian fold and create problems for their Muslim problem. So I think that this, the Pakistanis got it wrong, or, or deliberately, or because the fair factor overwhelmed their rational senses, I'm not sure. But the fact is that India certainly doesn't want Pakistan to come back crawling into, the, into their uh, territory and creating, prob and, and creating an imbalance between, um, the, the, in terms of the Muslim issue. So I think that's, but that was not learned. Uh, but I do think that the post-71 period is crucial to understand Pakistan um, uh, uh, you know, today. And in that, I'd like to sort of talk about um, Bhutto's foreign policy. Uh, I think in that foreign policy, uh, the bedrock of his foreign policy was a close relationship with China and the Muslim world. Um, and after the Arab-Israeli war and the quadrupling of oil prices in 73, he redoubled his efforts to uh, reaffirm Pakistan's ties with the Muslim world. What was driving him in large part, as I discuss um, in my book, is uh, this, uh, the need to compensate for the loss of of, of, of the, east, the eastern wing of Pakistan uh, by developing a nuclear option. Now, this didn't just come in out of the blue into his mind. We know now uh, that he had always been a supporter since his younger days as commerce minister uh, and many other sort of positions he held in Ayub's cabinet, pushing for uh, the nuclear uh, 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 weapons option, uh, which Ayub resisted because he feared uh, that this would uh, complicate relations with the West, rightly so. But Mr. Bhutto, especially after 71, was primarily focused on uh, the bomb. Uh, and so he fostered ties with uh, Saudi Arabia, with Libya, uh, with uh, the Gulf states uh, to pursue the nuclear option. Um, and I think that one of the things that come out quite clearly from work that's, that's, that, that, that has come out uh, in the last sort of five or six years is that uh, the pursuit, I mean, while the Americans were focused on Pakistan's attempt to obtain the French nuclear reactor, uh, Pakistan was in the process of um, a uranium option. Um, they were working on a completely different project. Uh, and so in that sense, Mr. Bhutto's role as the father of the bomb does come out. Uh, and I think that that's something um, we need to uh, focus. But there were some downsides to this relationship. One most obvious one really was, I mean, none of these pictures are coming. Oh, oh this, is not, this is coming on its own. This is extraordinary. All right. Um, so, I mean, you know, he used the, I mean, his crowning achievement uh, of course, was the Constitution, but at the foreign policy level, um, the 73 Constitution was his uh, 74 Islamic Summit, which he used as an excuse to, um, um, to, 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 to extend uh, diplomatic recognition uh, to um, uh, Bangladesh. Uh, and also, um, uh, he co-hosted, uh, 
sorry, this is not there, some of them, they're bizarre. Just leave it there. King, uh, I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia, the, the Saudi, Saudi ruler, Sheikh, uh, I mean, uh, Shah Faisal, uh, I mean, he, he used the petrodollar windfall to uh, not only seal a dominant position in the global order, but also uh, uh, influence Pakistan. Uh, and, and I think particularly uh, important for Pakistan was uh, the uh, ability of the religious parties in Pakistan, the so-called religious parties, uh, to get the Ahmadi um, a minority uh, uh, declared a, um, uh, uh, I mean, a, a non-Muslim minority. And this was done at the behest of the Saudi Arabian uh, 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 government. Uh, and it's interesting that this was a long-standing demand in Pakistan by these groups, uh, but it, nothing really worked. But in 71, because of Bhutto's dependence uh, on these uh, countries, the, 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 particularly Saudi Arabia, uh, the, the, the Ahmadi factor wasn't, it was, it was internationalized. A domestic problem was internationalized for uh, certain imperatives, and uh, Ahmadis were declared a minority. Um, so any definition of a Muslim by the state uh, was bound to th throw uh, the floodgates of bigotry uh, against smaller and other minority uh, sects. And so declaring Muslims are non, um, uh, Ahmadis are non-Muslim minority laid the basis for the exclusionary idea of citizenship, uh, which greatly undermined uh, Pakistan's um, um, commitments to the granting of equal rights of citizenship, which were really never fully um, uh, there in the first place. So the question that I then want to pursue with you is how transformative um, were these 11 years of Ziaur's regime carried out, and which, I mean, it's, we know that his duration and, 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 and uh, ability to his ability to stay in power was greatly expedited and facilitated by um, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the war uh, that, that was fought. Um, uh, what I do want to, uh, I mean, I, I won't go into the details, but maybe this is something that would be of interest to you. Um, nobody had quite imagined at that time uh, of how qualitative a change would come in Pakistan's life. So this is the point I, I want to connect with my opening statements. There this presumption that Pakistan was always doomed to become a orthodox, conservative uh, uh, Muslim state espousing a noxious uh, 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 sort of brand of Islam um, is, 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 is really belied uh, up to this point. I would say that Pakistan, until the mids, as late as the mid-70s, was quote-unquote as secular a state uh, as, as, as was conceivable, despite the uh, lip service paid to Islam. But under Zia, something very qualitatively different happened. It's typical for us to talk about it in the context of the Iranian Revolution and the Soviet invasion, but I also want to highlight the fact that they, this, this all took place within the context of the global assertion of Islam following the quadrupling of oil prices and the importance, increasing importance of the Wahhabi projection of ideology, and that really played a crucial role. 1979, of course, is best remembered for the Iranian Revolution uh, and the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, but what made it a pivotal year were three spatially disconnected incidents in Tehran, Mecca, and Islamabad that underscored the rising potency of anti-Americanism uh, in the Muslim world. Uh, the epicenter for the first, you know, was in Tehran, where on November 4th, 1979, pro-Khomeini students um, stormed the American embassy. Uh, the second um, was Mecca, um, uh, when during the annual pilgrimage uh, of um, Hajj on uh, November 20th, 1979, the Kaaba uh, was uh, the holiest place of Muslim worship, was attacked by 500 armed men led by Johaim al 
Othebi, a former Saudi National Guard. And then, finally, the third um, uh, uh, epicenter was the attack on the American embassy in Islamabad, uh, which symbolized the Muslim rage underlying the partnership between a shaky military ruler and Islamist politics in Pakistan. Now, but I do want to say that uh, this j support for the, the, so the, the, the jihad against uh, the Soviet invasion and the war against the Soviets brought about a qualitative shift in Pakistan um, uh, because uh, it provided, uh, I mean, it's not only to the sagging political fortunes of the military regime, but resulted in Pakistan becoming, uh, as, as, as everybody knows, a frontline state that came with lots of uh, greenbacks. Uh, it meant a, a transformation, qualitative transformation of the Pakistani um, a state. Uh, but, while resist but at the same time, there's always been resistance in Pakistan, and it came in many forms. Let's see whether this comes. Uh, uh, let's see. Yes, I wanted to bring this. Uh, women, uh, of course, were the foremost um, uh, critics of General Ziaul Haq and his so-called policies of Islamization. Um, and really seeking social and economic opportunities, not ideological lessons from a self-serving ruler, the democratic aspirations of Pakistan's disempowered found voice in um, the, the poetry of, of a very uh, famous poet in Pakistan, Habib Jalab. Why should we fight America's war and color our land with blood? We are awaiting light ourselves. Why should we throw stones on light? O oh, tyrant, have you ever thought why all of God's creation is fed up with you? We are the forerunners of peace and freedom. Why should we become the accomplices of a usurper? Pakistanis from various walks of life and ideological persuasions vocalize their opposition to Zia at home and abroad. One London-based group calling itself Pakistanis for Democracy wrote a hard-hitting letter uh, to the U.S. Senator Frank Church, uh, then the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, warning him of the hazards of granting military assistance to his country. Quote, Mr. Senator, you will pardon the people of Pakistan if they do not really perceive the threat to freedom by whatever the Russian troops may or may not be doing in Afghanistan. They know that their own freedom has been despoiled not by the Russian army, but by the gallant Pakistan army on whose upkeep they have been squandering over 70% of their budget every year since the country attained independence. It was, quote, the army which would not let democracy take root in Pakistan. Under the present regime, the army um, as an institution was becoming an object of disdain, even though the primary target of this public anger was Ziaul Haq. Um, because of his, quote, sanctimonious pose, palpable dishonesty, and untruthfulness. Any unconditional aid to, gen to General Zia and his junta would be planting a time bomb of instability in the region, which would be quite the opposite of what America wants and what the interests of America demand. I think uh, I don't need to sort of add that these ominous words have come back to haunt uh, U.S. policymakers um, uh, two decades later. Now, it's often said that the death of Zia, which I don't need to uh, elaborate on, um, assassination, the death, whatever it was, 88, uh, but he simply disappeared um, into the air. Um, in and, and the decade that followed, 88 to 99, um, uh, was a lost decade, proving that Pakistan is incapable of democratic um, uh, institutions. Uh, there's always been this narrative that it's best ruled by a firm hand military dictatorship. Um, but I do want to... Uh, point out um, that uh, the army chiefs or the return of the army in 1999 
uh, needs to be placed in context. Things had changed. Uh, the, the, the Cold War was over. Um, um, uh, and yet uh, Pakistan, I mean, uh, came under military rule. The difference, of course, was, and it's important to understand the difference between the Zia period and the Musharraf period. Uh, Pakistan was another country by October 1999 uh, than it was in July 1977 when Zia took over. Um, and I think uh, it's been all too easily dismissed as the lost decade. Um, in fact, it witnessed the crystallization of new political dynamics and active judiciary, a struggling if vocal media, uh, and a polarized but more conscious civil society uh, that was altering the civil military equation in significant new ways. Uh, so to what extent then, uh, so I mean, I think that this decade has been absolutely crucial in the developments that took place in Pakistan. Um, um, I mean, people are familiar with the, the Musharraf period particularly, but the, the, the lawyers' movement was deeply connected with the, the judicial assertiveness shown during this period um, uh, by Pakistan's judiciary. So the process has really started. So rather than dismissing this decade as simply a failure of politicians, which is, of course, the narrative in Pakistan, a military-dominated Pakistan, that the politicians have been the cause of everything that's wrong. I mean, I think all Pakistanis have to take responsibility. It's not a finger-pointing scenario here. But this notion that politicians are the cause of the problem. Um, I'm going to jump, because I know this is of, an int of interest. Uh, I'm just trying to give you talking points. Um, and this is just, of course, uh, I want to come up with this question, which is the burning issue in Pakistan. Now, I want to say that they were as free and fair as the structural and existential realities of Pakistan permitted. Uh, so long as there's too, uh, all too close an interface between state officials and politicians, a completely fair um, and fair elections in Pakistan remains an aspiration. Um, and I think that... The, uh, the, 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 I mean, the, the important thing here is that the 2013 elections were an extraordinarily important landmark um, in the realization of, the, of, of, of a very important objective, which was the transition, uh, de constitutional democratic transition from one government to the other. I mean, people might think that this is not very important, but in Pakistan's long history, it is the first time that a democratic transition was made possible. Uh, uh, in, in, in 2013. It cannot be dismissed as, uh, 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 as, an, as a non-event. Uh, the endorsement of democracy, uh, that's the second really crucial point about the 2013 elections, in the face of Taliban terror, by the largest voter turnout in four decades, uh, perhaps is the most encouraging sign of all that we can't ignore. Um, instead of the presidency and the military or, for, or the intelligence agencies, however, uh, that, that conniving to manipulate the electoral process has happened for much of that decade of 88 and 99, it was the outlawed TTP, Tariqe Taliban Pakistan, uh, that set the tone of the campaign by declaring democracy un-Islamic. Um, uh, pamphlets articulating the Taliban point of view were circulated, and yet citizens came out in large num numbers, uh, dubbing the outgoing um, secular um, uh, alliance uh, consisting of the PPP, Pakistan People's Party, the Awami National Party, um, and uh, the MQM, as, uh, I mean, you know, as, as secular, the TTP targeted these parties uh, with the result that they were not able to campaign as freely. Uh, as, and, and for the first time, there was an election where only the right wing was allowed to truly participate. But nevertheless, uh, I think it's important to recognize um, that... Um, sorry, there's some photographs just disappeared, so... 
I mean, the, the, the pro-Taliban parties, or at least the parties that wanted to speak to the Taliban, i.e. the PMLN, Imran Khan's PTI, JUI, they, who proposed talking, were permitted to campaign freely, um, as well as the other provinces um, that were awash with the blood of the so-called secular party. Uh, so I think I'd like to, I'm throwing these uh, important points uh, in, in, in your, uh, uh, you know, to you because I think these are the issues that we can talk about further in question and answer. And finally, I want to talk about this all-important question of whether Pakistan can indeed overcome terror. Uh, I think the future course of democracy in Pakistan is inextricably linked uh, with its capacity for overcoming this issue of terror, both existentially and conceptually. Uh, for all its litany of woes, I will say, Pakistan is not likely to disappear from the map of the earth uh, or the world in any great hurry. Uh, well, there are innumerable challenges, internal and external. Uh, the situation has not really gone off um, the rails quite as much as is perceived outside. Uh, power equations have changed, uh, and Pakistan's state of martial rule is no longer in a position to exercise power without some combination of political parties to legitimize the arrangement. Unlike the short-lived Arab Spring of 2012, there have been several Pakistani springs um, uh, fired by uh, the emotive force of regionalism that have all too easily been dismissed as secessionist and delegitimized in the state-sponsored national narratives. If the political mainstream had accommodated regional demands and aspirations, not manipulated them uh, to, the, uh, to suit themselves, uh, the curbs on military rule would have been far more effective uh, than they have proven to be. Another military intervention at a time when parts of the country, as you're aware, are in the control of insurgents and criminal militias with links to serving and retired operatives of the military, uh, of the state's intelligence agencies, uh, can really bring the whole edifice uh, crumbling down. Uh, confining itself to the role of ultimate arbiter, it seems, would be the better part of valor uh, for the army that has seen its prestige declining uh, in direct proportion to the ground it has conceded to civilian militias created by its own intelligence agencies. A constitutional change from civ one civilian government to another is a necessary but insufficient condition to bring about a decisive shift in the civil-military equation in Pakistan. The army continues and will continue to shape foreign and defense policies and has the ultimate say in internal security matters. The ability to prevent a military coup, and I'm talking about the future for Pakistan, does not imply civilian supremacy. Uh, it will take decades of an unbroken process of democratic politics in which governments are voted in and voted out uh, before civilians can match the clout of their military counterparts. But I do want to talk about one aspect. Am I already over? No, 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 go ahead. The burgeoning of a popular culture in the midst of a state-sponsored Islamization, terrorism, uh, whatever you want to call a state uh, uh, failure, uh, fate certainly at the level of delivery, but not failure, I don't agree with that, is a remarkable feat for Pakistan. Uh, it draws upon a rich and vibrant poetic, musical, and artistic tradition, uh, traditions that are really well manifested in the country's diverse regional and sub-regional settings. Uh, decades of authoritarianism and state-sponsored um, uh, nationalism have only strengthened the appeal of these regional counter-narratives and artistic productions. Creative engagements with uh, the regional and transnational realms of cultural and intellectual production, facilitated by new technologies, are producing rich and innovative forms of artistic expression. Among the more noteworthy achievements in recent times has been the spectacular success of the extensively telecast Coke Studio, 
um, session where talented Pakistani musicians, uh, amongst, uh, I mean, are sponsored by the soft drink U.S. Uh, multinational uh, to render scintillating new fusions of Pakistan's greatest folk and popular songs. Uh, the dazzling array of new directions uh, in the contemporary art, literature, I mean, contemporary art, literature, and music of Pakistan displays an ongoing tussle between an officially constructed ideology of nationalism and relatively autonomous and cult uh, social cultural and uh, cultural processes uh, in the construction of a national culture. The contestation continues. While Pakistan cannot match um, the output of India's performing arts and robust uh, commercial film industry, a number of its independent artists, musicians, and writers have been in the vanguard um, of creativity in the subcontinent as a whole. Uh, the, contrast, the contrast between collective failure and individual success is not a novel occurrence uh, in an authoritarian state. But it is the lack of acknowledgement of this cultural renewal uh, based on individual creativity that has consigned Pakistan uh, to the ignoble status of being nothing but the instigator of global terror. That's all that Pakistan does. Um, so I think that's a really major problem uh, in terms of Pakistan's persona. Pakistanis have much to on answer for this distorted image, uh, but the course ahead will partly depend uh, on the openness of the international community uh, to their considerable achievements on other fronts, cultural, culturally particular. While the intensification of religious extremism has certainly left deep psychological uh, scars, it has not been a one-dimensional process leading to the inevitable Talibanization of Pakistan, as some people assume. Um, Violence in the name of religion has also prompted constantly throughout counter-narratives. There are many Pakistanis who object to the state's projection of an imported Saudi variant of Islam and together with the military high command's strategic security paradigm has converted their country into a hub of extremism. This is amply evident in the musical, artistic, literary and dramatic productions coming out of Pakistan, reflecting the politicization of the personal um, that invariably accompanies the depoliticization of the public arena under authoritarian and semi-authoritarian regimes. If military dictatorships have not stunted the creative impulse, the unending waves of terror and counter-terror are being resisted through imaginative recourse in local, regional, as well as transnational idioms of a cosmopolitan humanism that celebrates rather than eliminates the fact of difference. These countervailing trends uh, evoking peace and accommodation may appear inconsequential uh, in comparison with the aggressive and exclusionary narratives on so-called jihad and Muslim identity that have enjoyed state support over at least three decades or more. Uh, but the misery and human degradation that has sprung from the effects of external wars in Pakistani soil have been an equally powerful uh, factor in um, uh, the rising popular interest in the rich cultural repertoire of the country's uh, mystical traditions. These conflicting dynamics of moderation versus extremism signify the battle for the soul of Pakistan that continues to be waged on several fronts, uh, imperceptibly and inconclusively. If Pakistanis continue conflating the teachings of their religion with the methods and ideology of the militants and turn a blind eye to the threat uh, the Taliban pose and other militants pose to, to uh, individual and collective security, overcoming terror will remain um, an unrealizable dream. Yet the dream exists and is being expressed in Pakistan's literature, music, and arts. Now, I, I think the last point, if I'm allowed to say so, 
It's not going to be easy for Pakistanis to learn to live with the shortcomings of their chosen representatives without losing faith in the democratic process. Um, uh, I mean, this will not come easily, especially in a context where there have been narratives, anti-political narratives, anti-politician narratives. If there's one thing, however, I'd like to say that Pakistan can take away from Egypt's experience uh, since 2011, it is that there is a world of difference between an ineffective government uh, that can at least be voted out um, uh, from office and an abject failure of democratic processes which military interventions unwearingly signify. Uh, Understanding this subtle um, and crucial distinction Um, which, of course, is there in their own history, Pakistani history, may hold the key uh, to Pakistan's release from interminable cycles of military authoritarianism and trigger the beginnings of a long but arduous journey towards a functioning democracy. After eluding Pakistan um, for over six decades, democracy is coming to be recognized by increasingly large sections of society in all the provinces of Pakistan as the perhaps remaining, one remaining salve, however, Uh, ineffective it may be in the initial stages that may relieve uh, the extreme stresses that have been caused by repeated abortion of political processes and military rule. Uh, It is a hope that I think has to be seized upon uh, so that Pakistan can provide its long-suffering people with a reasonable chance to realize their thwarted aspirations. In the process, this might result in laying the foundation, the basis for a new and more robust federal union Uh, based on mutual respect and accommodation among the different constituent units, uh, being played out um, in the vortex of global politics. Uh, The battle for the soul of Pakistan does not yet have a clear winner. The citizens of Muhammad Ali Jinnah's Muslim homeland have a voice still in determining its future. Thank you very much. Um, Before I open uh, the discussion uh, to questions from the audience, let me sort of pose a question to get the discussion sort of moving. Uh, You emphasized a lot on the creativity of the Pakistani people, uh, the the, the, uh, forward movement in the arts, literature, culture. What would you say to somebody who turns around and says, well, that creativity would still be there if there was no Pakistani state, if there was a Baluchistan, if there was a Sindh, if there was a rump Punjabi Muslim state and if the Pashtuns joined Afghanistan in a greater Pashtunistan, uh, what you're talking about are all hopeful signs about people. Uh, The state of Pakistan, which is only 67 years old, uh, still remains uh, sort of, you know, in, in, in a situation where a huge question mark looms over that. And that is the one question Uh, I think that is not answered by your presentation because the state, I mean, like, for example, Slovene culture survives the end of Yugoslavia. Uh, Bosnian culture endures. So are are we not making a mistake in looking at the cultural achievements of a people to try and become hopeful about a state? No, I I don't think so. I think that what I'm, I mean, the, the, the state needs reformulation in Pakistan not the end of the state, but I do think that there is, we, we tend to underemphasize um, what has been achieved 67 years by the nation state. This nation state is having an impact even in the way in which the artistic productions are coming through. If you look at the themes, the issues, they're either in resistance to the state or they are trying to project an identity that people 
see as a Pakistani identity, but outside the officially constructed narratives of that state. So I think that people are aware that the, that the state as it is presently constituted between civil military, uh, uh, I mean, the, the civil military imbalance, that needs to be changed. Uh, but I think that to say that this could still happen um, uh, without a Pakistan, I think is, 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 is different. I don't think that one, one could say that, I mean, c countries, as a country, there is a sense of identity that has emerged in 67 years, and much more so in more recent times than at an earlier stage. I do think that if you look at the artistic productions, there's a self-conscious attempt by people, who, even those operating in a transnational realm, to project their identity as well as Pakistanis. So I don't think you can write off Pakistan, but what the idea of Pakistan will be, is and continues to be is a process for the people to make. It is not for one institution to make. I think that is what I'm talking about, that that contestation is important. And the only way this is going to come to the forefront is if you allow the democratic process to continue, however inadequate it is, whatever the problems are, but you cannot stop it because that will only lead to a crumbling edifice. Um, uh, whereas I think um, uh, the, the state needs reformulation um, with, with, within discussions. And I think that in the last um, uh, a decade or so, we have seen that the politicians have finally understood the limits of power. And what democracy is, is to understand the limits of your power. That and, and negotiate and compromise. I think these are important things to seize upon, together with the broader expectation and hope I mean, these people are not sort of anti-Pakistan like the TTP or whatever. These people want the state to begin delivering. The state in Pakistan is constantly presented as failed or failing. Uh, but the interesting thing, as I pointed out, is that people are actually still going to these non-delivering -deli uh, government institutions. Uh, if you look at the uh, situation in, um, in, in Sindh or in Balochistan, it, the petitions are still going to government offices. The people still want the government to function. So I don't think that we can assume that because there's so many issues, Pakistan is over, uh, and, and these are too insignificant, and they could exist even as a Sindh or a Balochistan or a completely fragmented Pakistan. I do think that those 67 years have mattered. Okay. Um, questions from the audience? Uh, we have... Why don't you bring the mic to this side, Devin, first? Right here. First question. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, very interesting presentation. Uh, to bring it, I suppose, to a more nuts and bolts uh, level, it was very gratifying to see the uh, pleasure that uh, was taken with the democratic elections in 2013. And yet it seemed somewhat um, uh, unusual that the person, same person who had been deposed uh, years before, Sharif, uh, uh, accused of all sorts of corruption, was viewed instead as the savior. I know that although he certainly claimed to have changed, um, and I know there have been protests, I don't know how well grounded. What's your view of uh, how he's been doing since the election? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, well, I, I do think that Mia Nawaz Sharif carries some baggage. Um, uh, he has certain attitudes and styles of governance. Um, and he's had a very slow and lazy kind of a start uh, to his, uh, his, his, his regime. I think that he was not paying adequate attention uh, to certain issues. 
Um, and I think that has, uh, especially the sort of charges of rigging, I think that this notion that the elections were massively rigged um, remain unproven, of course. Um, and, uh, but, but the fact is that by creating that impression, um, uh, you have created a scenario where governments in Pakistan can't govern. They're more busy trying to just survive, right? And this has been a tragedy for Pakistan, and I think the focus really needs to turn now also to the opposition and its responsibilities. I do think that uh, in the previous regime, we did learn, thanks to the PMLN itself, I mean, I think that the achievements of the PPP government um, are somewhat uh, ignored. I mean, I'm not saying I mean, there were many problems of governance. I don't deny that. But at least the opposition knew, Mianawaz Sharif knew, that if he pushed too hard, it would only invite the military. Uh, and so I think that be, that was a positive thing. Now, with Imran Khan's uh, 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 dharnas and his protests, what has, I'll say two things. One is that his case is unproven, that the whole election was rigged. Uh, I think that you, if there were four or five uh, constituencies where there were problems, those need to be discussed. And the problem of elections in Pakistan is much more complex uh, because we have a, a partisan bureaucracy. You do not have a non-partisan bureaucracy. So bureaucracies are the, going to be crucial in terms of delivering a free and fair uh, vote. What I will say, however, in Imran's, to his credit, and also, also that, uh, that cleric, is that they have captured the imagination of the people of Pakistan who want delivery. They want solutions for energy, which Mia Nawaz Sharif's government is deemed to not have provided fast enough. People are impatient, and what his narrative does is to generate this notion that this government is a failure, which, is, which means that people are now increasingly open to a midterm poll. So I do think that you need to see that Mianwaz Sharif comes in a scenario with a, with, a, with a strong mandate, but the opposition is unwilling to accept his mandate, which results in a scenario, and because of his own ability to sort of uh, change his style uh, and, 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 and be more um, uh, sort of uh, on, um, uh, upfront and, and, and attack issues uh, that need to be addressed, uh, he, he has basically created the problem for himself. If he had responded uh, earlier enough, or, or, or preempted some of these issues, he may actually have created the space to govern. Instead, he is back in the same scenario on the defensive and therefore cannot govern to the, to the satisfaction of the citizen. So these are things that Pakistan, it will take Pakistan some time. I know that patience is not what the world has, or for that matter, Pakistanis have, but there is no other solution. They are going um, to have to wait to think in terms of processes, not in terms of individuals who are the deliverers. There is no deliverer. Only delivery is going to be a systematic process which everybody agrees on. Otherwise, there is no future. I mean, this notion, I mean, if, if we were to follow Imran Khan's principle, then anyone can get up at any time and say this election is rigged. Nobody will have to. All you need to do is uh, get some containers and stand, out of, stand out outside Parliament House. So we need processes in place on which there is agreement. The Pakistanis can disagree, but at least agree on the methods of that. That's the problem in Pakistan. I don't know whether that answers your question. But I do think Yanavash Sharif has some answering to do. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to sort of discuss the Musharraf case, which I think was a, a, a trigger uh, to the timing of the strikes and the, 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 the protests as well. I think that is a civil military uh, issue uh, that is pretty sort of problematic. The military is not happy. With, with the Prime Minister who seems to want uh, to uh, make, a make, make an example of Musharraf. So I think that has also been a problem with him. So his priorities, I would question his, 
his, his the, 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 the sort of rapidity with which he can answer the needs of the people. And the fact that he's losing that support because the people are, there's something in what the opposition is saying that is beginning to uh, find resonance in people's own uh, uh, lack of satisfaction with the government. That answers. Yes, question at the back. Um, good morning. This question is about the coming home of uh, Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. Do you think if she did not decide to come back to Pakistan and be assassinated eventually, do you think this has uh, changed the political situation in Pakistan by just staying in the UK and working on as an outside force and at the same time um, having her people work there in Pakistan? And do you think her decision to come back home to Pakistan is right or wrong? Thank you. How can it have been? I mean, well, it's a very good question. I do answer it in my book. And I, I feel that Benazir faced the biggest decision in her life. If she chose not to go back because of concerns for her security and they were real, uh, that meant saying goodbye to politics forever. She had very successfully, and I mean, Hossein knows this better than anybody, had very successfully run the PPP from long distance. But there came a moment when she couldn't do it any longer. She had to go back or give up. And so I think that when you uh, say that she made a mistake, I think she underestimated how much Pakistan had changed. She still, on the campaign route, wanted to get off and have um, fruit on the bazaars, and people had to say, no, you can't do this. So she, I mean, she came back, and she just, it was a decision that I think, you know, it's, 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 any one of us would have to make that decision. Either you give up your political life and sit back and retire and write your memoirs, uh, or you go back and face the music. And I think she took the decision. I know that she couldn't look the, her loved ones in the eye afterwards, but she made the decision. So I, I can't really say, I mean, I, I'm trying to say that it was a difficult decision that she took. Um, but we all hoped against hope that there would be protection for her. And I think that's another story of why that protection was not forthcoming. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, do you have any comments on Pakistan's like educational curriculum and what role that plays in shaping uh, Islamic national identity and how it will play into the future of the nation? Yes, I have written on this, uh, on the curriculum, the history curriculum. I have lots to say on the history curriculum. I think it's very crucial. I think the ex a good example of how serious the matter is a uh, more recent event in the KPK where Imran Khan's government is in coalition with the Jamaat-e-Islami, uh, where the Jamaat-e-Islami is insistent that the textbooks uh, take out photographs of Christmas uh, uh, um, cakes and, uh, because they are uh, Christian symbols. I think this is the whole problem. I mean, as it is, I mean, they are, you know, you know, the, the, the unwillingness to acknowledge the diversity that is there, despite being a majority Muslim state, reflects um, what our students, what our children are being taught there, what the children are being taught there. So as a result, I do think that educational reforms are vital. On the other hand, you have to appreciate the political economy of educational reforms. It's a whole narrative there. Uh, who does the textbooks? What is in the textbooks? These are political decisions. I think that this has been, but the awareness is very much there again. And there have been people, many people, who have been focusing on this subject and fighting. But until the government displays the political will, this is not likely to happen. So I think that that is one of the major areas that, that needs to be 
Question there. Yeah, let the young lady have it first and then. Hello, thank you for your discussion. My name is Khadija Kamer. And my question to you is, if you um, had five minutes to speak into the ear of Nawaz Sharif, what are three top priorities that you would recommend that he take up in the next six months? Very, very good question. My number one issue would be that he has to begin to um, treat the bureaucracy like a bureaucracy, not as a personal, I mean, his, his, you know, he, he, he works with favorites, right? So the bureaucracy has to function. Um, and I think you need to function 24 hours. Pakistan needs in the next sort of 20 years uh, a government that works, if not 24 hours, then certainly 20 hours a, a day for the problems. And they're just simply not getting addressed. If the prime minister doesn't set the example, the bureaucracy will not either. If he chooses to work with only a few people, um, the, the rest of the bureaucracy just collapses as well. So that's where that would be my first issue. The second issue would be on security, because you need the bureaucracy to sort out this mess. The, the bureaucracy is crucial in Pakistan. And I, I think some of you, it's, it's a good discussion, but I still think that reforms within the bureaucracy and a change of ethos would do, go a long way to address even the security challenge in Pakistan. Um, because by, with the administrative bureaucracy, I include partly the, their relations with the police. Uh, the bureaucrats are still very crucial in Pakistan. So these would be the two things uh, I, would, uh, I would examine. And I think facing the militant question in the face and stop making uh, distinctions between good and bad militants is what I would propose. The third is obvious. I mean, it's the economic degeneration. <coughs> that that has to be prioritized, but that can only happen if you do the other two. Uh, you do need these things. I mean, I, I would focus on those three issues for now. And, well, you know, as far as uh, the, that good and bo bad might exist, the only category in Pakistan uh, where there is no good <laughs> is politicians, according to the They're military. They're all bad. Otherwise, corrupt, as far bad, as the corrupt, yeah. bad and corrupt, as far as that's the narrative that yes, the lady right. was going by. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Mr. Sharif was never convicted of any crime, never even charged with any he was just thrown out by a military coup, uh, through a military coup. So, if the people of Pakistan voted him back, that basically thought uh, that that basically reflects the fact that, as far as the people are concerned, they did not believe the propaganda that had caused his removal from power. Um, and politicians carrying baggage, well, I guess there we have to find a new country or a new world where politicians don't have baggage. Hmm. Uh, politicians always have baggage. Politics has its own way of, of moving forward. Um, right there. Um, yes, do you see a relationship uh, between the military and um, Imran Khan and uh, Tahir uh, Qadri? Sorry, a, a relationship between the military and... Right, a is, there, is there a connection between the military between and Imran Khan <coughs> and Tahir al-Qadri? Look, I don't see a formal relationship, but in Pakistan, everybody talks. Uh, 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 you know, and, and, and so whether they, are, whether they are sort of messages and attitudes... Um, as I said, I mean, I do think that the Musharraf trial has been a sore point uh, between the civilians and the military. Um, and I think that there is a sense in the military that Mr. Nawaz Sharif didn't live up to his promise, which was that he would... I mean, that he would be convicted and then let go of. Uh, but that hasn't happened. Whether in that context, I do see that that played a role in conversations. I don't see a formal linkage uh, uh, at all uh, between uh, the, 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 the current uh, army chief and Imran Khan uh, as such. Uh, but, but, you know, there is this 
there is a context in which these um, um, uh, demonstrations have to be seen. Uh, there were uh, obviously Imran's own personal uh, uh, concerns with the, with, the, with the rigging issue uh, and the, 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 the style of governance um, uh, that both, in, both uh, at, the, at the federal level and also in Punjab. Uh, there was, I mean, the, the terrible event that took place, the model town event, played a very crucial role. Uh, everybody got on that. I mean, and you know, you can't expect the army not to be involved at some level. But I don't think that there is necessarily um, uh, an attempt to sort of, you know, uh, force out the government. Uh, in, and, 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 and Imran is not the, he, you know, he's, he's, he's not something that the army can bank on. Uh, Imran cannot be relied upon by the army, in my view, because he'll do what he wants to do. He's not going to be dictated to by the army beyond a certain point. But I have a question to add to that. Yeah. I mean, Imran got a significant number of seats. He did seats so well. well he Why did, he wouldn't he, be satisfied so, with that? But, but the question is he never attended parliament. That's right. Like, he, he exactly. just showed up for his uh, uh, swearing in as a member of parliament, and after that never showed up in parliament. So the very fact that he did not want to play the role of the parliamentary opposition uh, basically makes one wonder about, you know, you, you, your whole argument is that Pakistan is moving towards a democratic consensus. Uh, shouldn't he, and then Mr. Tahir al-Qadri and his party didn't even contest the election. And he, in fact, first came uh, saying the whole process of democracy is fraudulent and it's wrong and we need to have a revolution. Now he's coming kind of done a compromise and he says, okay, we'll c consider participating in the next election. Isn't there like a split between those political forces in Pakistan that accept the fact that you get elected, you run the government if you have a majority, you sit in parliament and oppose if you're a minority, and those who still think that the total order needs restructuring, and isn't it also a reality that by and large the military's narrative as an institution favors those who say this parliamentary system is not what we really need. We need to restructure everything. So in that sense, there is a, if not a, a, a shall we say, a control mechanism, definitely an inspiration that is shared between Imran Khan, Tahrir al-Qadri, and the military. Yeah, uh, I would only contextualize what you're saying. I think Imran uh, really believed. <laughs> he had a dream that he had won. Uh, so I think that he really believed that those, the, I mean, he did remarkably well. I mean, I thought it was a remarkable achievement that a party that was non-existent ended up with 20-odd seats. But that was not good enough for him. Um, uh, and to say that, I, I do think that we shouldn't really treat the military as a monolith either, uh, if I may say so. There are individuals in the military uh, that do think that a democratic process would be better uh, and feel that the army should be doing its own work. I think that we have to understand that below the colonel level, the Pakistani military is very different. Uh, in, I mean, they are not part of the political agenda. Uh, so I think that there are those voices. But what you are saying is absolutely right. I mean, Imran is in a hurry. He wants to come into power. Uh, and that is the pro problem that I was referring to early, that the only hope for Pakistan is to agree on the process. And Imran's insistence on undermining parliament, the one institution that made him possible, is completely uh, bewildering. Now, whether he's taking his, his, his um, instructions from the military, I kind of doubt that. I think he's doing it because he really wants to come in in a hurry. And I think that's what I mean, that the process is not respected. People who are not beneficiary of the process want to undermine the process. This has been the 
problem with Pakistan, and there the military has taken advantage of that. But I do think that if you say that the military trusts Imran completely, I don't agree with that. I think the military would be very wary of Imran uh, in power because Imran will do exactly what he wants to do. Um, right here first. Thank you, Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. As someone who doesn't live Pakistan, this has been really interesting, and thank you so much for your insights. I have a question. <laughs> In your speech, you just said, and you know the anti-Americanism. And I'm saying to myself, okay, why? We don't have a lot of capital investment there. We don't have um, a lot of big companies with their name all over the place and so on. Does it come from Islam? Does it come from a feeling that we're too pro-India? Uh, pro Does it come from the feeling the CIA is still controlling everything? What was the reaction? Because to the American, when they think of Pakistan, they think of the beheading of Daniel Pearl, yes. I guess, and so on. They had a beautiful show on 60 Minutes about uh, modern Pakistan with the models about two years ago and the cosmetics and everything and all the advertisements and so on. So the real question is, is there a feeling that oh, is the anti-Americanism something that comes through no fault of our own other than we happen to be the United States, or does it come through, through course of a, of a purposeful strategy for the, some of the things I mentioned? Thank you. Well, I think, again, uh, it's a more complex uh, uh, issue. I think the Pakistanis wrongly, I think there, again, the ambassador has, uh, Ambassador Haqqani has also written about this as magnificent delusions. Um, they think wrongly uh, that America owes them something. Um, now, the point here is that 65 is cited as one example, the 65 war as the example that America is a fair-weather friend, then used again in the, uh, the, I mean, but I do think that what, what, what Americans need to understand is that this is not just the opinion of some right-wing extremists. Um, people who are liberal on the left are equally disillusioned but for the wrong, for the different reasons. I mean, in terms of the U.S. role in Afghanistan and how the military was propped, there are a lot of liberals and intellectuals who feel that the Zia era changed their country. They lost their country. And there they blame America, who dropped Pakistan, they argue, once again, as soon as the job was done, and believe that it will happen again. So I think that has been the reason for this anti-Americanism in part, because it is the thwarting of their aspirations, what they want, democratic aspirations. The U.S. has seen, and again, I mean, I'm sitting with someone who uh, can pull out the statistics right now and tell you how much the U.S. has given to Pakistan under military regimes and correspondingly into how much they've given under civilian regimes. So I think this is what's actually doing it. Uh, to say that it's Islam, I would only venture to say that it flows from strategic calculations where the U.S. is seen not to have met those calculations. Now, you might also ask, why does America persist? The Americans have created a conceptual distinction between operational support and strategic cooperation. They understand that Pakistan does not agree with them strategically on Afghanistan, but they have been quite content proceeding with operational support. Now, this is what creates that, generates that constant friction between the two uh, uh, you know, non-allies, if you like. Uh, but I think that the Pakistani public sees this continuing relationship with great suspicion. Why continue the operational when you are clearly not in agreement uh, with, uh, but I, you know, with, 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 with strategic uh, dimensions? But that's what happens in international relations. People tend to see things more simplistically. 
but governments and people don't. Right in the middle. Thank you. Um, as you pointed out, there's an awful lot that's written about the weaknesses of Pakistan. And you argue that it's, there's actually more strength there, more resilience than being given credit for. Besides the cultural revival that you mentioned, what other factors would you identify uh, as resilient factors in the body politic of Pakistan? Social, economic, or political, or any institutional? Would the judiciary, for example, qualify as a positive factor because it asserts itself every so often? Uh, is the bureaucracy uh, a potential uh, pillar that you could depend upon if, in fact, it was depoliticized, as you had indicated? So what are the factors? Are there anything in the economy, in the economy or, or social cohesion uh, or national identity of Pakistan? This is not well-researched or identified. Again, a very good question. I can say that one of the things that I constantly find in Pakistan as a, as a general proposition is the desire for peop for, 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 of people for Pakistan to do well. They really are desperate to see some good news come from Pakistan. So I think that these are people who have not written off their country. The world might write off Pakistan, but the Pakistanis can't afford to write them off, write themselves off. So that is a very crucial dimension. I teach in Pakistan, and the youth are the great hope of Pakistan. Um, uh, they need opportunities. Uh, they need to be able to pursue their, uh, their goals within Pakistan. Uh, and I think those economic aspects are, I mean, obviously the government has to revive the economy. I mean, I think those are the, the, those are the, those are the great problems that Pakistan continues to face. But intellectually, of course the country is divided, but which country is not? You have your rights and you have your lefts, uh, but the fact is that they are, they are people who want to uh, see Pakistan succeed. They know that they can't pick up their bags and go off somewhere else. This is the country they have. Uh, so I think that there is a problem in not understanding that there, is a, there may be a structural problem in the nature of the state in Pakistan. I've tried to focus on the federal, I mean, amongst the many things, civil military, but also the federal equation. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that everything else is rotten. It's, because, it's precisely because of that relationship, civil military, which has accentuated uh, center regional relations in Pakistan, that has resulted in this extraordinarily problematic scenario where we currently have not just um, uh, insurgents, but criminal militias who are implicated in the state, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, who, are, who have sort of, uh, uh, you know, who have protection by state elements. Uh, so I think what needs to be done uh, is to um, implement uh, uh, the law, I mean, a, a greater recognition. But unfortunately, the opposition parties that, that we, or, or, or elements have, I mean, there is no agreement. I mean, they keep, I mean, what, 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 what I think the opposition parties uh, 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 are trying to do is to destabilize, delegitimize. And Hussain is right that that helps the military. But I think equally important in Pakistan has been the way in which the parties in parliament have stood up to this and, 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 and supported. I mean, this would never have happened in Pakistan uh, 10 years ago. But they have stood up and said, I mean, the PPP, uh, I mean, I do give PPP credit for that. They've got up and said, we'll support this government. I mean, just as the PMLN did to the PPP. So I think this is something that is positive. The youth is positive. But they need a lot more openness. Um, you can't constantly have... I mean, you know, what, what's happening is that through the social media, through new technologies, they are beginning to find the means to contest 
the, the, the military authoritarianism that has been deeply entrenched in Pakistan, the Pakistani state. The most visible manifestation came with the lawyers' movement where people did take uh, 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 initiative. But I, I, I think that people underestimate the passion and enthusiasm of the people of Pakistan. They don't have a choice but to carry on struggling and with their struggle. And, 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 and I think that is what, what they need is a context in which they can um, uh, actually express themselves democratically. Mr. Kadian here. <coughs> Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, thank you for a terrific presentation. Um, the India issue had to come up. Sorry? So the India issue had to mm. come up, so I'll bring it up. Uh, one thing is, how does Pakistan view the Modi vote and the Modi government? Uh, the two things are related, of course. And the second is, after 10 years of comparative uh, dormance, the Kashmir issue is again picking up steam both along the line of control as well as in political forum. And in fact, General Sharif has talked about it here yesterday. So those are my two questions. Thank you. Well, I mean, obviously, the, the, I, mean, I would say that the way the government of Pakistan, the current government of Pakistan, perceives Mr. Modi, um, initially how it perceives Mr. Modi and how the intel intelligentsia views the issue is not the same necessarily. I think that there, there is a difference here. Mr. Nawaz Sharif was prepared to, to do business with, with Modi um, uh, as much as was possible. Um, and I do think that the, that, the, uh, the, that the tensions along the line of control have uh, been a problem um, because there are elements in both countries, not just in Pakistan, uh, that don't want this uh, peace process to go forward. I think Mr. Modi himself um, uh, has an agenda where he, at the, I mean, there are elections in Kashmir and he hopes the BJP will win. So there's every reason to play the Pakistan card uh, for that purpose as well. Uh, so I think Mr. Modi's agenda to turn the BJP into the new hegemonic party um, will have an impact uh, in relations, uh, not, not, not least because of Kashmir. I think that that's what's being attempted at the moment. So it's both sides. There are elements in both sides. But in the first instance, Modi's victory uh, may have been looked with exasperation by certain elements of Pakistan's intelligentsia but not so uh, um, As far as uh, Sharif was concerned, he was prepared to do business regardless. But there are other elements in the picture that complicate uh, in Pakistan. Uh, and so when there's firing along the line of control, clearly nothing proceeds. And now with elections in Kashmir coming and the BGP making a bid to win the elections, clearly there is a reason uh, for further tension along the line of control, I would say. So it's not very hopeful. Um, I, I must add, but there is still, I don't think that there is any turning back um, on some of the discourse that has changed between India and Pakistan, notably on trade. Uh, both countries maintain that we must open up on trade. It's another matter how far they're going to go in that. So I don't think they're going to back out of that. Uh, it's going to be an interesting um, uh, sort of first year of Modi in office. Uh, there may be uh, uh, opportunities later once Mr. Modi has consolidated himself domestically or feels sufficiently consolidated uh, to take on issues like Kashmir. So don't, I, mean, I wouldn't uh, write it off, the Indo-Pakistan relationship altogether. I think there is an imperative. But at the moment, there's some balancing taking place within India itself, um, which is not over yet in terms of Modi's agenda. So last two questions, Seema, and then right here in the front. So... Seema Siroi, I'm with an Indian think tank called Gateway House. Um, you're one of the most 
eminent um, scholars uh, on Pakistan. So I was wondering if I could just press the Kashmir question a bit further. Uh, you say everybody knows that Pakistan army kind of controls foreign and national security policy. So under what kind of uh, circumstances would it be willing to settle this issue? Um, uh, in India, there is uh, a change, and uh, a strong party is probably more able to uh, settle the issues. So I would say the signs in India are, are better than they were before, um, even though Modi may not be perceived as the right person in Pakistan. Uh, the second question I had was on blasphemy laws. Um, I mean, in your presentation, you sound more hopeful than I've heard many liberal Pakistanis to be lately about the state of uh, the civil society. And, uh, you know, theater and films, that's all very well, but the number of Pakistanis who are liberal are kind of escaping the country, and that segment is getting thinner and thinner. Recently, a Christian couple was, um, burnt to death and like you know uh, i wonder how you think they can fight back the this really narrow segment well you know your first issue on kashmir um, about what will make the army agree i think uh, basically it's not a, a, a impossible solution i believe that the kashmir issue can be resolved uh, um, uh, between India and Pakistan without, I mean, and that's another story. I mean, I've, there are lots of uh, solutions. Um, but I'm very happy to hear you say that um, things have changed in India on Kashmir. That's one thing that has not, never changed in India, uh, the, the Kashmir policy, which has been that there's nothing to discuss. If there is anything to discuss, it's when Pakistan can return its, uh, uh, what, what it occupies. So, but if they are willing to discuss uh, how to withdraw uh, paramilitary forces from Kashmir, uh, and I think that if necessary, they can even send them all to the border to ensure that Pakistan doesn't push militants in there. If there's a real change in India, that's very hopeful, because I think Mia Nawaz Sharif would certainly like um, to encourage his army and, they, and vice versa to come to some kind of an agreement where they don't have to constantly sort of uh, 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 you know, fire along the lines of control, line of control. I mean, they could be, uh, uh, I mean, the two, the two, I mean, they started in the Manmohan period where he said, you know, we cannot uh, redraw borders, but we can make them redundant. And some trade started, but that trade stopped after the earthquake in 2008. There are many things that can be done that will help matters and bring the army. I mean, they, you know, the trade could also include uh, some, uh, 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 so some advantages for, from the military's point of view. I don't think, I mean, it's a question of how you proceed with it. But if there is a change on Kashmir in India, that's excellent news. Uh, a strong party, um, and I think there could be some discussion. But discussions have to proceed. I mean, just because Pakistan talks to Hurriyat should not be a reason to call off secretary-level talks. I think that has to carry on. On the issue of blasphemy, I agree with you that there are some surreal challenges. Um, uh, and these local uh, in instances fought not for any, uh, 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 I mean, any religious reason, but purely material reasons for the most part, uh, and the failure of, 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 of um, the police or the, or the judiciary to book such people and make examples of them. All of these are problems. But the reason why I, quote-unquote, sound optimistic is because, unlike your liberal, the liberals you talk, who are packing up their bags and leaving, the majority of Pakistanis cannot do so. 
So that is what I'm talking about, that there is no choice. While the state has to change its structure, the people must continue to live on. That is what the reason for the optimism is. As a historian, I can say that nobody wants to take over Pakistan, but Pakistanis have to have, they, they cannot afford not to hope and be optimistic. Final question. Next week is the deadline for the negotiations on Iran's nuclear program. And uh, you're their eastern neighbor. So my question is, what, what does Pakistan think of the Iranian nuclear program and how, to what extent is it worried? And the second question follows up this blasphemy uh, previous question. Could you describe the, the nature of Islam in Pakistan? Is it that much more intolerant than other places? And that's the impression one gets here from the press, these cases of blasphemy and so on, which just aren't reported in many other Islamic countries. Yes, thank you very much. Um, on the first question of the nuclear, Iran, Iran's nuclear program, um, I understand that Iran is going to be compromising uh, uh, quite a bit, uh, short of regime change. Uh, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not privy to the thinking of the Pakistani military establishment, they, did, they don't fear Iran's nuclear program and, in fact, have been quite willing to be sharing information, uh, at least in certain periods of time. So I don't think that this fear of Iran being nuclear is something that Pakistan is going to worry about uh, particularly. They're more worried about border, Balbuchistan issues and uh, that. As for the blasphemy uh, point, clearly there has been a problem, but there's a history of this issue that needs to be looked at as well. You can't, I mean, you know, these instances have occurred, they're frightening, they're awful, but the whole country is not intolerant. That is something that I, I think is very, it's a question of perspective. It's a huge country. Uh, and I mean, if you're going to take these instances and report them constantly, and they are real problems and we need to address them, everybody knows that, uh, and not look at the other things that are also happening and saying those are insignificant and these are more significant, then you are prioritizing and getting answers that you want. I mean, how you approach a problem determines half your answer, most of your answer, not half the half. So I think it's the attitude and the perspective. In writing this book, I've tried to bring perspective. If you choose to emphasize the problems of blasphemy in Pakistan, uh, uh, then yes, it looks awful. It's the worst case. But you, you, you forget the fact that this was done for a particular purpose. And this is not Islam so much as a strategic use of Islam. For, for strategic purposes. This is not a religious fanaticism that is manifesting itself, but the fact that this was used to create um, a scenario that would keep uh, authoritarian rulers in power, um, uh, and, and, and exactly that's what, is, what has been the problem. So again, uh, I would only say that perspective matters. Um, uh, and if you are constantly going to look at the bomb blasts that go on every other day in Pakistan, or the blasphemy cases that tragically keep coming up, but they have also been efforts to make sure that this becomes more difficult to do. I think those are, they're not fast enough, not incre I mean, incremental increase is not there, but we do need to keep perspective and keep pushing, keep pushing. But the moment you write this country off, you will have a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what it will be. Well, on that somber note, thank you very much, Dr. Ash Jalal, and thank you for being such a good audience.